Welcome to Powerhouse Politics, the ABC News Politics Podcast. I'm Jonathan Carl, ABC News Chief White House Correspondent, with my friend Rick Klein, ABC News Political Director. And we have a lot to talk about on this show. Really, the week that will make or break the Republican Party. I don't think that is too much of an exaggeration, uh, Rick Klein. This is the week going into Florida and Ohio, mini Super Tuesday where Donald Trump either clinches everything or virtually clinches it or guarantees that we have one long knockdown drag out fight into Cleveland in the Republican convention. It is bizarre how events have aligned that you have the two two major candidates of the four remaining have their home states to defend. They are the biggest winner take all states. They happen to be big battleground states. Uh, and you have an opportunity for Donald Trump to knock them both out with a pair of punches, one in Ohio, one right here in Florida. I'm down in Miami today where you have back to back debates, Democratic and Republican side. And this is for all the marbles. I mean, this is Donald Trump has been rolling through states, winning state, winning victories across the country. And if he wins the big winner-take-all states in Ohio and Florida, as you know, John, you've looked at the numbers. We'll talk about it a little bit, but it becomes virtually impossible for anyone to catch him. And he is on a glide path to getting the majority and to becoming the Republican nominee. A, a crazy set of circumstances converging to, to bring us to this moment. And there are so many subplots here. You have Marco Rubio making his last stand in Florida. We have ahead a fascinating conversation with one of the more influential and important voices in Republican Party politics in Florida, Al Cardenas. Uh, he joins us shortly. We also have very happy to be joined by our uh, embedded reporter on the Rubio campaign who has been there from the start. And let's not forget, Rick, we're also uh, seeing the Sanders campaign coming back to life with a surprise, uh, nobody saw it coming victory. Uh, in the uh, in the great state of Michigan. And we're also going to talk to our friends at 538 about what happened there and what we can know going forward. Uh, so, uh, Rick, what do you make of this? Is, is, is this the last week in Republican presidential politics for a guy named Marco Rubio? It, it would certainly appear that way. I mean, if he doesn't win Florida, it's lights out. You really can't spin that. Uh, and uh, Kasich maybe have a better, slightly better shot in Ohio. But yeah, this is the, the meteoric rise and fall and rise and fall of, of Marco Rubio. We've written a bunch of obituaries already on this. Uh, and then on the Democratic side, man, what happened in Michigan? It, it, it reorders your, your, your sense of this race. It seemed like it was over. And everyone thought that Hillary Clinton was going to roll right through Michigan. Uh, she drops a, a big one, uh, one of the biggest states so far on the map. She still walks away with more delegates. So we'll have to dive in a little bit to figure out whether we're talking about a brand new day in the Democratic race or just kind of a blip on the way to the nomination for Hillary. And another subplot is what is going on at Donald Trump events. We had this crazy story about the reporter for Breitbart News. By the way, I don't think there is a news organization that has been more pro-Donald Trump from the very start, but we have one of their reporters who says that she was essentially assaulted by Donald Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. Uh, one, you know, there are witnesses, including a Washington Post reporter, uh, just an astounding uh, set of circumstances, followed by some alarming video of protesters at Trump rallies being actually assaulted on camera uh, by uh, by pro-Trump, uh, you know, by 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 some of Trump's supporters at his rallies. What's going on? Physical and verbal assaults, an ugly scene at so many of these events. You know, I've never seen a candidate 
who foments the kind of environment, uh, the raucous, uh, rowdy environment at, at a campaign event like Donald Trump does. He actively, he seems to seek out the protesters. He loves them. He plays off of them. He loves to say, get them out of here and watch local police escort people out of the building. He's even said he'd pay the legal bills uh, of, of anyone who, uh, who got into a tussle with protesters. Uh, he, he loves this. And you're seeing this kind of ugly side to his events with his campaign manager and, of course, at these events at the most recently in North Carolina. A 78-year-old man charged with assault and battery, disorderly conduct for for assaulting a, a one of these protesters on the way out, and just a shocking piece of video. So even as Donald Trump rolls, you know, all these questions being raised about how exactly he's doing it, what kind of uh, what kind of you know what kind of coded language he uses, the way that this campaign has conducted itself becomes a, a late-breaking storyline. And, and Rick, I was uh, at an event uh, last night with uh, with a couple of Republican senators, uh, one in the leadership, one very close to the leadership. Uh, and I can tell you that, that the fascinating thing is that they are starting to come to terms uh, with what it will mean for their party to have Donald Trump as their nominee. And, and the one thing, and I know there's there's some division within, uh, you know, among Republicans on Capitol Hill about this, but both of them were adamant that they thought that uh, with, with all the misgivings they have about Donald Trump and all their fears of what a Donald Trump, uh, uh, you know, running as the Republican nominee means for their, for their own races, for the Republican races and Republicans trying to keep control of the Senate, for all their concerns about that, they would actually be more concerned about their colleague, uh, Ted Cruz, winning the nomination. That, that that's stunning, but but you know if you followed Republican politics, maybe not that surprising. But people, the f- idea that the establishment may be comfortable with Donald Trump, and the idea that the last two people standing would be Trump and Cruz. We spent so much of the year saying who's the establishment candidate going to be. Maybe there was no establishment lane at to even run on. Maybe it didn't exist at all. That's what it seems like if those are the last two standing, and that might be exactly the situation we're in after Tuesday. But what I am told, Rick, is that if Trump gets the nomination that you will see the entire congressional leadership uh, fall into line and say that they are supporting the Republican ticket, Donald wow. Trump. So that, you know, that, that, that's a big moment. And, uh, you know, the, the, the remaking of this, of this Republican Party. But I've said this before, John, and, and we talk about Republican divisions. If you actually look at what's happening in the states, Republicans actually aren't all that divided. They are united around Donald Trump. He's winning across income areas. He's winning across demographic groups. He's winning across regions of the country. So this is just a matter at this point of, of listening to your own voters if the Republican Party ends up getting in bed and then, and then sort of cutting your losses and saying, we're not going to do better than this guy. We have, to, we have to support him. All right, let's turn to Al Cardenas, a former chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. By the way, also uh, the former head of the American Conservative Union, which, put, which puts on CPAC. Very influential voice in terms of the conservative movement and in terms of Republican politics in the state of Florida. Somebody who is close to both Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio. He was an advisor to the Bush campaign. Uh, He's unaffiliated right now and has a fascinating perspective on his old friend, Marco Rubio. So, Al, you were obviously a supporter of Jeb Bush, but you are a longtime friend and supporter of both Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio. Right. What happened to Marco Rubio? Oh, great question. Well, look, there was a there's a bit of uh, significant concern at the outset of this journey that uh, two fellows, not only from Florida, but lived within a mile of each other in Miami, 
uh, might well cancel each other's chances out. Um, and uh, with regards to Jeb, that kind of proved to be true. Uh, Marco, now left to his own devices, you would hope would have been able to pick up that space and uh, and earn a lot of the votes that were in the lane occupied by Chris Christie and Jeb Bush. And so, circle back three weeks ago, I thought that Senator Rubio's chances had significantly increased, and this could well be a three-person race. Uh, contrary to that, I think he decided to take on Donald Trump and those feisty exchanges they had, and uh, it didn't do well for him. And, and my sense is, look, uh, folks in our voters in our primary who enjoy those kind of tussles were already supporting Donald Trump. I think people who were undecided or who supported others were kind of looking for an adult in the room to uh, to get behind, and and so it was probably not the right strategy, and and certainly not well timed. And and then he's had two back to back tough election cycles where he's not won a state and where. He's averaged less than 20% of the vote. So now he comes to his own home state, hoping to carry the flag, uh, not only for his candidacy, but also to to get to an open convention where no candidate gets 1,237 votes. But the polling numbers are not encouraging. Uh, yeah, I mean, you've got multiple polls now that have Trump with very large double-digit leads. Uh, is, is this going to be the end of the road for Rubio? Well, it looks that way. Look, over a million Floridians have already voted. Uh, you know, you would think that maybe uh, those who voted are exemplifying the polling numbers. So on Election Day, where maybe 50, 55 percent of the votes will be cast, uh, you know, you'd have to win by almost double digits in order to make up a difference uh, in the polling numbers before the election. So it's a it's a high task. Uh, the bar set pretty high for him. One never says never, but uh, but I wouldn't want to have the odds he's facing. And how much is this going to hurt Rubio uh, going forward? Uh, he, what, what, what's his next chapter? I mean, he he could even if you if you look at the trend line, he could even come in third in Florida. What what, what happens to get embarrassed so badly in his home state? Where, where does he go from here? Well, that's a great question. I you know I always pondered whether uh, it was either up or out for him. And I know that he's got a young family, and he's eager to join the private sector and take care of them. And so he's got a wife, three young kids, uh, who in a few years before you know it are going to college. And so I I don't really see a political office for him in the immediate future. But uh, not that he's not uh, capable of of, of being considered a serious candidate. I I think, personally speaking, he's... He's probably going to be looking elsewhere, at least for a while. And what happens if Donald Trump does what it looks like he is poised to do, wins the state of Florida? What are the odds of stopping him? Well, Donald Trump wins Florida and Ohio. I think the race is pretty much over. Um, uh, For Ted Cruz to, and I think the race now is a true two-person race between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and Joan Kasich serving a valuable role. As, as one who can gain delegates and and uh, keep uh, Mr. Trump from getting to 1,237 delegates. But if Donald Trump gets both Ohio and Florida, and you add those to the number of delegates he already has, uh, it's going to be pretty difficult to stop him from winning this thing before you get to the convention. Do you go to Cleveland, and do you support the Republican nominee in that scenario? 
there are two words for that, and that is the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah. We can't we can't let the legacy of Supreme Court, who oftentimes is the strongest of the three branches, uh, you know, be in, in the hands of a Democrat uh, president. So so that alone would motivate me. But look, Donald Trump realizes that in order for him to win the general election, he's got to find peace within the confines of the Republican Party. And once he secures the nomination, I'm curious to see how how things progress for him. He, he needs to have an olive branch. He needs to pick a running mate that folks are comfortable with. And, uh, and he needs to start talking like a general election candidate. And if all of that happens, there will be a comfort level, a growing comfort level amongst many of us who desperately want to win in November. Now, if he doesn't do any of that, uh, boy, you're left to wonder what's what's best for America and what one should do personally. In other words, Rick, uh, you're going to see a lot of longtime Republicans, influential voices in the Republican Party, who will be forced to make a decision about whether or not they either vote for Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, whoever the Democratic nominee is, uh, not vote at all or vote for a third party candidate because they're just going to you know, be unwilling to uh, to support Donald Trump. And there is no smoke-filled room that can take the nomination away if he wins a majority of delegates, and probably not even if he, if he wins a plurality of delegates and is close. It's just not going to happen. And there's no electoral scenario, realistically, that allows a third-party candidate to come in there and take it away from him. So I think look, there will be a realist quality to many of these Republicans that say it's better than the alternative. Uh, we're not going to have a, two presidential candidates this cycle. Let's stick with our guy. And as you point out, there will be some who say – you know, Donald Trump is maybe less of a threat to what we do and what we say than Ted Cruz, even though Ted Cruz is a sitting United States senator and the colleague of many of the folks making these decisions. Okay, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got Micah Cohen with 538 to get the inside look on what that process looks like and uh, if there's any chance whatsoever left at stopping Donald Trump. And what about Bernie Sanders? We'll be back in just a minute. ABC News Radio. The situation unfolding in the streets of Ferguson is absolutely chaotic. Another volley of shots, five or six gunshots. Honored with the prestigious Edward R. Murrow Award for overall excellence for the second year in a row. We're at the Al Aqsa Martyrs Hospital, which has been hit by Israeli tank shells. There's a gun battle raging in the streets of Kiev. There is some sort of debris in the water. We will be the first plane on site. The best team in radio is right here. ABC News Radio. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. I'm Jonathan Carl, ABC News Chief White House Correspondent, joined by Rick Klein, ABC News Political Director. And Rick, we've got with us uh, our partner at 538, Micah Cohen, uh, the man who follows all the actual numbers on this stuff a lot closer than, than even we do. Micah, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So i got to first uh, start with what the heck happened in Michigan. I, I, as I recall, you guys were uh, in your polls-only forecast projecting a 99% chance of, of Hillary Clinton uh, winning the Michigan primary. And from all I could tell, that's basically what the Bernie Sanders folks thought as well. Yeah, you know, I don't think Bernie expected to win. We certainly didn't expect him to win Michigan. But the short answer as to what happened is we don't really know. I mean – the poll showed Clinton ahead by 21, 22 percentage points going in. That, by the way, we have a database full of polls going back to like 1972. It's, that Sanders win in Michigan is the biggest upset in 
basically modern primary history. I mean, that 20 percentage point gap, no candidate has ever sort of come back from that deficit uh, on the day of an election. The closest, I think, was Hart in 84 in New Hampshire. But it's really just it's worth kind of taking a moment to say it's a stunning polling miss. Um, You know, if you look at the data, polls underestimated how many young voters would vote. They underestimated how pro-Sanders those young voters would be. Um, They overestimated how well Clinton would do with black voters. Sort of one ongoing question here is Clinton won black voters in Michigan, according to exit polls. But do black voters outside the South have a different uh, preference makeup than than black voters in the Deep South? Uh, So that's one thing we'll be watching. But, but let me ask you this. Did, did something change in the race? There was obviously a debate right before the primary. Did, w- w- were there facts on the ground? I mean, it's one thing. The polls uh, obviously had, had one factor is the polls were just wrong. But, but was there something changing in that race? Was there, was there something that caused Bernie Sanders uh, to make up considerable ground in the final days? So to me, that is the kind of big overriding question in the Democratic Democratic race right now. It basically boils down to, was Michigan a fluke? Um, Or did something change? Or did nothing change? And maybe Sanders was always going to do well or better than we thought in the Midwest. If you look at the demographics of Michigan, it's actually not that surprising that Sanders did as well as he did. Um, it's a, it's a, it, it's not a totally white state, but it's less diverse than other states that uh, are voting soon, Illinois, Florida. Um, and it's pretty liberal. So that part isn't that surprising. So, but the big question now is whether something changed or it was always this way, is Sanders going to be stronger than we thought in Ohio, especially in Illinois and Missouri? Um, I think Florida is less of a question, but it's possible that if that's the case, then Sanders does much better on Tuesday than we initially thought. And then you actually have a run of states that are quite favorable to him after March 15th. I wish I had a better answer, but I think we just don't know right now. We don't know whether Michigan was a fluke or whether it signals something that's fundamentally different uh, about the Democratic race. So play out the delegate math here, because you talk to the Clinton campaign and they make a compelling case that she has built up a lead that is insurmountable because you can't win functionally by enough to pick up the kind of delegates you need. It's possible that Bernie Sanders wins more states than Hillary Clinton from here on out, but doesn't win enough delegates. Do you see anything changing? Forget the superdelegates. Leave them aside for a second. Can Bernie Sanders actually catch Hillary Clinton in the delegate race? So I think if nothing else, this election has taught us to never say never, right? Um, <laughs> although, you know, we've, we've kind of always had that motto. But it's, th- this is a case where I think the kind of Clinton campaign spin is, is pretty believable. And I think the numbers bear that out. You know, Clinton, again, just looking at pledged delegates, um, is about 200, 200 plus delegates ahead of Sanders. And unlike the Republican race, all delegate allocation on the Democratic side is proportional. So Sanders doesn't need to just win states. He needs to win them overwhelmingly. Michigan, as surprising as as it was, didn't actually help Sanders that much in the delegate race. And actually, Clinton picked up 
delegates on the day because she won so overwhelmingly in Mississippi. So can Sanders come back? I think it's very unlikely. Um, I think something, you know, an external factor would have to would have to intervene, uh, a scandal, something else to sort of knock Clinton off pace. That said, I think one thing Michigan does suggest is that maybe this race will be will be more competitive than we thought. Clinton will probably still eke it out, um, but it could be it could could be more competitive and go on longer than we thought. But again, you know, I I would never say it's impossible. It's just very unlikely. But Rick, I've got to say, Bernie Sanders, and I'll say this again because I've said it before, Bernie Sanders has already won. I mean, the fact that we're even having this discussion, the fact that he just pulled off a win, uh, you know, that nobody saw coming in a state like Michigan, the fact that he uh, has, you know, did what he did uh, in, in New Hampshire, the fact that he has pulled together this movement. This is a guy that wasn't endorsed by a single one of his Senate colleagues, that had no big money behind him, obviously, ever. That uh, was seen as a protest candidate who was looking for a way to to at least get into a debate against Hillary Clinton, and look what he's done. He's going to come in to that Democratic convention in Philadelphia uh, with a boatload of delegates. Uh, you know, I, I totally agree with Mike. It's 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 it it, it becomes we, we we will never say never, but it looks incredibly difficult for him to. Uh, to actually win the nomination. But, I mean, the fact that that's even, like, something we're talking about is incredible. But hold on, John. Isn't that like saying the Mets won the World Series because they were just happy to be there? I mean, he's running for president of the United States. This is is like, you know, my Little League team getting to the World Series. Come on. Um, I mean, it's it's amazing. Did you think that Bernie Sanders was going to, as you just said, could, could have a chance of actually winning more states than Hillary Clinton? No, and I don't think I don't think Micah would <laughs> would think that as well. I, you know, anyway, Bernie Sanders probably didn't think that, but I, you know, I, you have to think once you get this far along that you're, you know, you're starting to actually believe the hype, maybe if nothing else. Micah, I want to ask though, is there anything that you guys take away as the as the smart people when something like this happens in in a, in a big state like Michigan? Do you adjust your models? Do you go back and say, man, we you know 99% likelihood clearly that wasn't right. We gotta we gotta you know recalibrate how we calculate these things. Is there anything that happens when you see data come in like this that makes you say maybe we have to be doing something different? Yeah, so so that's a really good question. You know, with the model specifically, no. P- part of the part of the uh, the benefit of having a model is you kind of set it up and then you step away from it and you don't touch it. And that way you're not tempted to, um, you know, go with the swings of the day-to-day news. And it's just kind of an objective way to interpret the polls basically. Right. But um, that doesn't mean, you know, one, th- one big difference between primaries and general elections is primaries aren't that predictable. The polls are much less accurate historically. And, you know, we actually have two models for the primary. And part of the reason for that is there's no real perfect way to predict primary elections. They're just much more unpredictable. And so for us, it's more like it makes us question our own models more and makes us say, hmm, I'm not really sure Ohio or Illinois are really as kind of as much of a loss for Clinton as these forecasts suggest, but we don't go in and change anything with the model, no. 
Okay, Mike, I, I, we're almost out of time, but before you go, I, I've got to ask you about the big question. Donald Trump is keeps telling me that uh, that, that he's going to be, you know, the, the best candidate possible to take on Hillary Clinton, and he'll beat her no problem at all. So uh, I'm wondering, uh, I assume you guys agree. Yeah. yeah uh, no. Um, no. But seriously, how how I mean, what 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 does Donald Trump look like uh, as a, as a general election candidate? Is it do, do you think that he is a better candidate for Republicans in the general election than Ted Cruz or or not? I don't know. I feel like I've been saying that a lot on this podcast. But here's what we know: um, Donald Trump is really really unpopular with voters, with the public overall. That's not good for a candidate, right? <laughs> no, generally, all else equal, it's better to be popular than with unpopular. Voters, specifically, yes. With, right. with okay. voters, right. He, he, now, he was once really unpopular with Republican voters, and that changed, right? So it's possible it could change with, uh, gen, you know, with general election voters, too. But here are the kind of, here's how I think about it. You know, Ted Cruz is very, very, very conservative. Historically, candidates farther from the median voter ideologically have paid a price at the polls. It's not a, you know, it doesn't mean you can't win. It just means four, five, six percentage points, something like that. You're working from a from a deficit. Donald Trump, I'm not sure how you would describe his ideology. So we can't say Trump is too conservative for general election voters. Or too liberal. He is, or too liberal, right. He's, he's probably both and neither. Um, but he's really unpopular. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if once he locks up the nomination, if that happened, all of a sudden it's like a new Donald Trump. And and uh, remember, like, Romney's Etch-A-Sketch? Trump, right. I'd imagine, will have no no qualms about all of a sudden sounding like a, like a real moderate because so far – his kind of policy positions have been over all over the map and he hasn't really shown any, any inability to, to shift um, very quickly. So, so the short answer is, I don't know if I, my kind of prior going in is Donald Trump would not be a good general election candidate and has the possibility to of being really quite disastrous. Like um, it could be a, an epic disaster for the Republican party that's not certain, but it could be. All right. Well, uh, I think there are at least uh, some Republicans who might agree with that assessment uh, and some who think that somehow uh, he may actually be surprisingly good. We will see. We will talk to you again soon. I'm sure Micah Cohen, 538. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to be back with our reporter on the Marco Rubio bus with the uh, the tale of Marco Rubio's last stand, or maybe last stand. We'll be back in a minute. When news breaks, ABC News Radio is there. Is an active shooter situation at Fort Hood. When tragedy struck Fort Hood again. Police moving around the base. They're giving descriptions of a person that they're looking for now. I'm a pretty seasoned reporter, but I thought, no, this couldn't be happening again. ABC News Radio honored with the prestigious Edward R. Murrow Award for outstanding breaking news coverage. When news breaks, there's only one place to turn right here. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. I'm Jonathan Carl, ABC News Chief White House Correspondent, along with Rick Klein, ABC News Political Director. And this, Rick, is all about 
Florida. I mean, we've it, it's come down to Florida. Republican Party's you know last chance to really stop Donald Trump, and they're staring down a guy who's got a double-digit lead in the polls. It, it, it is it is incredible because it if it, it can't happen now without Marco Rubio, and he becomes the essential player in this. Uh, that, uh, that that Florida has to happen for Rubio in some way, or Donald Trump is going to be on a, on a glide path. Florida and Ohio, they can make it happen for Donald Trump, and then just in the space of a month of voting, uh, Donald Trump went from you know nowhere on the map and and you know having lost Iowa to to winning and now putting together the kind of winning streak that just seems like it could be unbeatable. And Rubio has had the worst couple of weeks in politics uh, that, that, that I have seen a candidate have had probably since we saw our old friend Rick Perry uh, say oops at a, at a debate. But that leads me right to Inez de la Cuerta, our reporter who has been with Marco Rubio from the very start. Uh, Inez, where are you? Hey, guys. I am in Miami right now. You are in Miami. What is the mood there with, uh, with the Rubio team? Yeah, so it's a little weird. Um, I was at his rally yesterday in Hialeah that was held in a stadium, but they were only able to fill the end zone. Um, so it was, you know, I think about 700 people were there, and they were really fired up. I mean, it was mostly Cubans and Hispanics, and they loved Marco Rubio, so they were really excited to see him. But it was a little weird to see that in his hometown, this is his home turf, he, you know, is from here, grew up here, has spent his entire career here, and he was only able to bring out 700 people. Um, and then, of course, the optics looked really, looked really bad because, as I, as I said, it was in a stadium, but they were only able to fill the end zone. So it was an empty stadium with this kind of these people jam-packed in the end zone, and it was just um, a little weird. So that might also be because Hialeah is a small town. Um, it's kind of like a, a smaller town within the Miami area. Um, but it was weird. I definitely expected to see a lot more. We saw a lot more people in Georgia a few weeks ago. He hit 7,000. He filled an entire stadium in, in Georgia recently. So it, that was a little strange for sure. Well, and Inez, you have this this odd situation where, you know, right after the, the debate in Houston, uh, Marco Rubio starts going after Donald Trump, even suggesting mm-hmm. that he wet his pants at the debate the night before. And then ensues this crazy back and forth with insults about the size of hands and other body parts. And, and then... It seems not to work, and Rubio now reverses course again, and now he's saying that he wishes he had those words back. What's the campaign saying about this? Do they admit that they have been misjudging the potential strategies? Yeah, they won't admit that it was a strategic error. They won't. They won't. Say, they won't admit that. Um, but it was really bad. It was the um, he. You know, he's saying Trump has the worst spray tan in America, and that he flies around on Air Force One, and that he doesn't sweat because his pores are clogged with spray tan. Um, and it was very, it seemed very out of character for Rubio. They say, um, so yesterday, of course, he did a town hall with NBC where he kind of said he regretted the personal attacks, that his kids had been embarrassed by them, um, but that he doesn't regret calling out a bully. And he says somebody had to stand up to Trump. And uh, he talks a lot about, you know, growing up in kind of uh, lower income class neighborhoods and how in the schoolyard when there was a bully, he learned that he, you had to stand up to a bully and when someone punches you in the face, at some point you have to punch back. And so that's what he was trying to do with Donald Trump, um, but that he's not proud of the personal insults. And he hasn't, he hasn't, he definitely toned down those attacks. And he, he says he's going to keep attacking him on policy, um, but that it won't be so much the uh, personal attacks anymore. 
he even said the other day, as you know, Inez, that uh, he thinks that the Republican nominee will, the person who wins Florida. Uh, are people upbeat? Are they keeping on a happy face despite this? It just seems like a slog toward a really bad ending. Yeah, they have. They definitely have their poker faces on. You can't really tell that um, anything. I mean, they, they won't admit it, and they're very adamant that they'll win Florida. Um, but it is a little, you know, it's what, one thing that's a little strange is I know for, for a while there, they were, um, he, like he himself, the candidate, Marco Rubio, would come to talk to reporters and would have OTR kind of sit down uh, over breakfast or lunch and, and really kind of engage with us a lot more. His staffers as well, his advisors would come talk to us all the time and kind of hold these impromptu off the record talks to discuss strategy and, and um, what they were hoping to do, like before Super Tuesday, they, you know, sat down with us and, and walked us through what they were hoping to get out of um, that day. And that hasn't happened in a really long time. And yesterday at this um, stadium, a few of us saw both Terry Sullivan and Todd Harris, two of the senior advisors, and kind of went over to them because we're so used to just chatting with them now and we were expecting to get a little bit out of them. And they just did not engage with us at all and wouldn't really talk strategy. And so... Um, I don't know if that's because they don't really have anything to spin, you know, or if it's just that they, they don't want any more bad media coverage, um, but they're not, they're definitely kind of staying away from the press right now. Wow, a remarkable couple of days that you're going to witness out there. And as stay safe, good luck on the Rubio beat. Appreciate you being uh, right here on Powerhouse Politics. Definitely, thank you. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Don't forget to subscribe. Check us out right here every Friday. For ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl, I'm Political Director Rick Klein. Thanks for listening.